Coming up today, Natasha talks to Deliveroo's struggling heroes. Amit explains why historians are annoyed at YouTube. And Matt Reynolds looks at how Italy got to grips with COVID-19. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when the NHS COVID-19 app passed 12 million downloads. The contact tracing app for England and Wales, which launched on September 24th, has experienced a few teething issues, including sending out misleading push notifications and an inability to register negative test results. This week, Donald Trump confirmed that he has tested positive for coronavirus hours after a disastrous presidential debate that saw him mock Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden for wearing face masks. And it was also the week when astronauts came closer to pinpointing the location of a very small leak on the International Space Station, which has been confounding them for over a year. On Tuesday night, astronauts were awakened from their sleep and had to hurriedly close hatches and search for the leak after it seemed to be getting worse. But now they've at least pinpointed that it is coming from somewhere in the Russian side of the spacecraft and they're sending more air on the way. So that's not terrifying at all. And finally, this was the week when the UK's Transport Committee of MPs recommended legalising the use of e-scooters on British roads. The group said e-scooters would provide a greener alternative to cars, but that they should be banned from riding on pavements. So hold on a minute. Matt, there's been a hole in the International Space Station for a year and it's not that much of a big deal. Yeah, so it is only a very, very small hole. And what happened this week was... I said, yeah, I know, it's fine. A small hole in the, in, our, in the vacuum of space. But what, what happened this week was a, uh, basically a, there was a temperature change and a, I think a sensor basically misread that and thought that that meant that there was a lot more air leaking than actually was. The, one of the space station managers described it, the process of pinpointing this leak as, well, we were looking for a needle in a bunch of haystacks and now... Now we've found the haystack, but we still haven't found the needle. So they've narrowed in slightly on where the leak would be, but it's still a work in progress. But they say they've got at least another year. So you know, you know what it is with minor DIY tasks. You put them off for a little while, and so, so what if it's yeah the the vast expanse of space staring at you? Yeah, I mean, people might be looking at doing a bit of DIY to make their houses winterproof, but you'd think that there'd be a little more urgency when there's a hole between you and the vast expanse of nothing but there we go what did you learn this week Amit? i learned that in the time since pluto was discovered in 1929 it hasn't even gone around the sun once uh, in fact we won't observe a full pluto orbit until the year 2178 of course no one really cares about pluto anymore uh, because it's not a planet but i still care pluto <laughs> i'm still waiting for your strong <laughs> orbit strong words uh, I, I imagine you'll be long dead yeah. by the time that Pluto completes a full no, I'm gonna, I'm going to upload my brain to the cloud and live forever as a machine <laughs> of course I won't be 
Uh, Natasha, what did you learn this week? Well, I learned that despite people's perception of Japan as a tech-loving nation, their offices are surprisingly old-fashioned. So I found out they're stubbornly loyal to fax machines. 95% of businesses and more than a third of households still have them. Their use is connected to an even older technology I learned, which is Hanko, the stamps that are used for signing contracts and approving corporate and bureaucratic documents. This week, the government in Japan declared war on this old-time stamp and ink and paper because people are still going into work during the pandemic to get their documents stamped and I just thought it's so funny because people still have fax numbers on their business cards and I've always wondered if you send something do you think they still have a fax to receive them in Japan they do and they'll probably answer you and ask you for a stamp so I thought that was nice you're welcome very nice from from stamps to banks, Matt Reynolds? That's right. So I learned that Euro banknotes each feature an image of a different bridge, but none of those bridges exist in real life. So these bridges, uh, these images of bridges were designed in 2002 when they were designing the Euro currency, and they were intended to evoke different elements of European architecture without actually featuring bridges from any particular nation in order not to basically piss anyone off by putting their bridges on the notes without putting other people's bridges on the notes but in 2011 a dutch designer called robin stam built all of those fictional bridges in real life so they're now all part of a housing project in the dutch city of spikenessy very well done you got there with the pronunciation i saw the word coming and wondered how you were going to do do you want to give it another crack there's a slight hiccup but yeah i got i got through there in the end Congratulations. Uh, I learned this week um, while trying to reassure myself that not the entire world wasn't in flames, that there are actually 12 UN member states and 11 dependent territories that have yet to report a single case of COVID-19. Now, almost all of them are very remote islands in the Pacific or the Arctic, but there are two exceptions, North Korea and Turkmenistan. We can probably safely say that both of those countries have had major unreported and untracked outbreaks. But the Solomon Islands give us all reassurance that life does still go on in some way like it did before. 700,000 people, the most popular state in the world, yet to report a single case of COVID-19. For now. So there's a, yes, it it will get there eventually. Surely it will. Uh, Time to let you know about something new that's coming up from Wired. If you want to know what's coming next, then you should join us for Wired Smarter, which is our annual conference about the future of business and innovation. It's taking place virtually, of course, from October the 13th to October the 15th. We're running the whole thing like a fancy TV show. So it's split into six 90-minute episodes featuring some of the smartest minds out there, including serial entrepreneur Marcia Kilorgi, Ocado Chief Technology Officer Paul Clark and Mark Reed, who's the CEO of advertising agency WPP. It's insightful, interactive and podcast listeners can get 50% off. Head to wired.uk forward slash smarter and use the discount code podcast50 to pick up your discount pass. That's wired.uk forward slash smarter and use the code podcast50. We hope some of you will be able to join us for Wired Smarter. It really is going to be a brilliant event. Our first story this week, Natasha, is about 
Deliveroo's heroes. That's right. So this week, Deliveroo announced plans to add 15,000 new couriers to its systems by the end of this year, on top of the thousands already added during the pandemic. So the delivery company said that this is in response to rising customer demand for restaurant and supermarket deliveries on its platform. At the time of the announcement, Chief Executive Will Shu said that riders are heroes and that they're so proud of the vital role that they're carrying out in their local communities during the pandemic. So I decided to speak to people who work as delivery couriers about how the addition of new couriers will affect them and whether this statement about them being heroes has resulted in higher fees or bonuses for them. The people that I spoke to painted a very, very grim picture indeed. So they described struggling to make ends meet already. They're concerned that more couriers will mean more competition for delivery fees. One person spoke about working 12-hour days, seven days a week. Another said he couldn't afford his rent this month because he felt ill and couldn't cycle around safely. A third said that he kept on working even though his flatmates, he lives in a six-bedroom flat, are high risk of infection because he felt he had no other choice. So despite being referred to as heroes, some delivery couriers feel that they've been shortchanged. One courier told me we risked life and limbs to support people and all we got was lower fees and not even a thank you. So couriers are claiming that their average fee per delivery has dropped from £4.25 to a minimum of three fifteen per order. And riders are saying this works out to them making around £6 per hour working 12-hour shifts. And they believe that this will worsen over the coming months if more people are added to the system. A whole bunch of stuff has happened here. I suppose delivery couriers used to make an awful lot of their money servicing offices mm-hmm. and busy, bustling city centres. An awful lot of restaurants have had to change the way they operate. More of us are ordering through delivery. So you'd think that even though things have changed a lot, that there was more work out there for delivery couriers. Should they, so they should be, well, not raking it in, but making an okay living. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening. Well, so, I mean, basically, you're absolutely right. So many of, of, of the couriers that are working for Deliveroo deny that they're earning well above minimum wage, which is what the company has been saying. And they claim that the addition of restaurants on the network, it's about 11,500 have joined since lockdown, has not equaled a, a rise in work for them. So during the lockdown, things were pretty dire, as you can imagine. The lack of, of influx of people coming into offices, um, people were afraid about deliveries at one point that they would sort of bring in coronavirus so that that kind of it really impacted their fees so at one point one courier in scotland said that he was earning five pounds an hour in april he was working the good hours dinner time between six and nine p.m this is sort of a common theme uh, throughout whatever city uh, anyone's working and they always say six between six and nine that, those are the times where you get most activity where most people are working during lockdown um, people who rely on delivery as their main source of income though described waiting around for hours and no orders coming through but Deliveroo added thousands more couriers during lockdown. This is what, what has, has happened already. So the people who are already struggling claim that they had more competition for the meagre work that was available at the time. There were some evenings when Archie, who's a, a delivery courier I spoke to, um, who was working for over a year um, in London, said he didn't make any money at all. And he kept on watching his competition, so new people cycling around in Deliveroo kits. And he said he, he saw that as a slap in the face. Um, since lockdown ended, they claim that the demand for delivery simply hasn't returned to pre-COVID levels and they're concerned that basically all these other people coming onto the the system um, will mean that they will have even less opportunities to get those commissions um, and to make ends meet. So something's not really adding up here is it because if like you're saying Natasha we've got new couriers coming into the system but there's not 
necessarily enough work at peak time to even service or provide enough work for the people that are already there. Plus, we've got almost 12,000 since the pandemic started and then another 15,000 coming on board in the future. Surely we're going to be spreading work even more thinly. So uh, how can this work out? If, if there isn't enough demand for the people that are currently working, why is the company bothering adding more couriers to the you know, to the whole process. Yes, I mean, it's worth saying at this point that Deliveroo completely disagrees that there isn't any demand. So at peak times during lunch and dinner, um, Deliveroo says the average the couriers can earn in the UK is £11.63, but the top range is significantly higher. So the the company maintains on average that riders can earn more than minimum wage. Um, And they've said that the new riders that they bring into the network, that's riders is, by the way, what they call couriers, that the new riders they bring in will only be in specific parts of the country where they've seen demand increase substantially so that they can protect rider earnings. Um, they've said that they are absolutely committed to supporting riders and are very proud of the vital role that, they made, that they've played in their communities. But whether demand is there or not doesn't really matter here. Adding more couriers doesn't actually impact the company's bottom line. Having more people cycling around cities uh, in the country is free advertising, basically, for Deliveroo. And since they're not employees, it won't cost them a lot of money. Um, so, so this is the, the fundamental um, issue here. That it's, it's very nice to say we're trying to protect um, delivery couriers' um, income, but they're saying they're not making ends meet. Um, something doesn't add up here, but for delivery, that doesn't necessarily matter because it's it's an opportunity for them to offer new jobs. People are going to want those jobs, and it doesn't really necessarily impact their bottom line if they have 30,000 people on their network or 15. I guess what we might see, um, delivery is obviously hiring a lot of people, as you mentioned, or bringing on a lot more riders. We might see, uh, unfortunately, more people kind of turning to gig economy work like this in the next kind of six months as the furlough scheme ends, as, uh, you know, a potential no deal Brexit hits, as a lot of people lose their jobs, they could be turning to this kind of like, you know, through no choice, basically turning to this kind of like uh, gig economy work. Uh, are we at risk of seeing kind of a race to the bottom in terms of like a massive influx of uh, people doing this kind of work at the same time as a huge drop in demand for, for deliveries because people have less disposable income? Yeah, basically, yes. So couriers are convinced that there'll be masses more competitions in the weeks and months to come. And they're concerned about the weather and the waiting time as well. So as the temperature plummets, many more people will will be waiting outside restaurants. But despite this and the cold and the rain and a lot of people being on bikes and the competition between sort of bikes and uh, cars, because cars are given more preference, for example, and and motorbikes because of the costs inherent in having these vehicles. So you've got bike couriers at the bottom of the of the uh, list of of people getting things um, and they're going to be out in the cold and it's going to be really grim. But they still think people want those jobs so uh, if you think about the stats of what amount of people actually working for the economy by mid-2019 these companies including Deliveroo were already employing one in ten adults in the UK or 4.7 million people so as the pandemic continues to impact businesses and the unemployment rate reaches record levels gig economy companies may soon fill the void left by hospitality and retail two sectors that are continuing to struggle so restaurants aren't hiring pubs aren't hiring the retail sector aren't hiring it's seeing opportunities like this with Deliveroo where it's relatively easy thing to do if you are able-bodied and can cycle and have an opportunity to access a bike or or a car it's it's a very attractive proposition still for people who don't 
necessarily have any other option available to them. I spoke um, for this piece with Matthew Taylor, who's the author of the Taylor Review into Working Practices, and he's the current chief executive of the RSA. And he said that up until this very moment, gig economies have basically worked in in exclusively tight labour markets where there's been enough work to go around. So even even though they had a high demand from people, there were still other options of employment. Now things are completely different. And he was saying this is the true test of the gig economy because now they've got hundreds, if not thousands of people desperate for work. And what gig economy work does is transfer the risk onto the shoulders of the worker and none of the risk onto the shoulders of the platform. This means, for example, that uh, just like one of the couriers that spoke to me, if you fall ill and you can't work, it's not up to Deliveroo to pay your wages or your rent in this case. It's not up to Deliveroo to cover you because you're not an employee. So all of the risk um, inherent if, if you don't meet those quotas, if you're unlucky and you're at the bottom of the list and you don't get any orders it falls on your shoulders even if if you don't have any other options and so that for him um he, he's argued that many forms of gig work shouldn't be portrayed as self-employment at all so uh, matthew taylor was saying he argues that they should be entitled to the minimum wage and other protections um, and that that would attract national insurance payments from the employer. He's actually argued, he's like, put setting aside human rights, setting aside workers' rights, this is a fundamental issue of tax. He was saying it's more attractive for businesses to uh, make people self-employed at the moment than it is to have them as employed people simply because they pay less tax. And all that money, if you're looking at a substantial part of the population suddenly becoming self-employed, is flying out of the coffers and it's not going to be good for our economy in general so he was saying you know putting aside all of the all of your feelings about gig economy work it's not going to be a good news for our economy in general and so this is this is a really interesting story because it feels like it touches upon a lot of the issues that we're going to be seeing in the months to come as people struggle to find employment and there are no other options out there um so yeah that's that was it was a sad story and um it's it's it looks like things are going to get worse in the coming months um as more and more people are added to the site so what you're saying is that this isn't just quote unquote bad labor it's also a bad business because there's always been this problem inherent in the gig economy we look at uber and deliveroo and uber eats that as matthew taylor says the risk isn't on the shoulders of the platform. But in order for these platforms to exist, it never can be because they don't have a business model if they have to shoulder that burden in terms of cost. Because something that's remarkable to me is I can order just a couple of side dishes from a restaurant quite a distance from my house and it will be delivered to me for basically nothing. So somewhere in that chain, the economics are broken. It's true. And, and the interesting thing here is that people are stuck in the middle. We've seen this happen before. And that's that's one of the uh, surprising things about what's happening with Deliveroo at the moment. We saw Uber a few years ago in that same situation where you had loads of drivers on the road. Uh, they completely clogged the system, according to the critics, um, in, the, in especially in London, where you had loads of people waiting around. They spent over 50 percent of their time just waiting for people to hire them. And that could be the scenario here for, for Deliveroo riders if they're not very careful as to where they put these people there's there's no change in our circumstance compared from six months ago this is this is a problem that was bad before 
got worse during the crisis and isn't going to change. And that's that's the interesting thing here where you think, okay, if things are bad now, um, what's going to happen six months down the line? We're still going to be working from home. People aren't going to be back in their offices. Our behaviour isn't going to go back to normal. But yet you've got thousands more people competing for the same jobs. And it's, it's just bad news for anyone that's, that's going into this at the moment because a lot of people are sold on high expectations. They think that they will make ends meet and as it turns out they might be faced with a massive shock there's a big problem of people's expectation of convenience as well and and maybe amazon has played a significant well undoubtedly amazon played a significant role here in offering free delivery next day delivery we expect things to arrive before we've even thought about ordering them and to not have to pay for it yeah and it turns out that there is a cost to that and under the coronavirus, we're seeing that cost played out in quite grim detail across the country. Yeah, it's true. And I think it's, it's really interesting. Some of the people reading this piece were kind of benevolently on Twitter saying, well, what happens if I give someone a, a tip? What if I give them £5? And it, it, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, it, customers shouldn't necessarily be subsidising people's wages. It's not, it's not a, it's a sort of plaster on a huge gaping wound. It's, it's not going to solve the issue at all. And, and I think unless the government steps in and puts in some sort of provision to regulate and to, to set some standards for this economy, it's going to be very difficult because it's growing massively. And there's nothing wrong with what these companies are doing. That's that's the fundamental issue here. There is nothing wrong. There's nothing illegal. There is there is no problem with what Deliveroo, Uber Eats, um, Just Eat, any of these uh, delivery companies are doing, Amazon. There's nothing illegal. And that's because the government hasn't yet put in place protections for people who are in this situation. When you think about the employment law, it's not set up for self-employment in this way. If you think about freelance work, freelancers set their own rates. These people aren't able to set their own rates, but under law, there's no provision for that to happen. So you're stuck in this scenario where you have zero rights, just like a freelancer would have, but you haven't also got the right to determine how much you're being paid for the work that you do. So until the government figures this out and they set things out properly, it could be a massive mess that we're faced with in the, in the coming year if, if things go on the way they are. Optimistically, as more people <laughs> enter gig economy work, maybe it will put pressure on regulators and legislators, legislators to put in place a system that actually makes this kind of work work for people. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Have you started working as a delivery courier to help make ends meet or is it a job that you've held in the past and have since moved on from let us know your thoughts on that story podcast at wired.co.uk our second topic for discussion this week is about colorization of youtube videos amit yeah that's right so um there is loads of historical footage on youtube these are videos kind of taken in the early days of film um of you know cities and and people just kind of going about their daily lives in in black and white uh, and some popular YouTubers have been using AI to help kind of clean up and colorize this footage. So turning these like jerky black and white images of the past into colorful recreations of street scenes. So you can walk through New York as it was in 1911. You can see a color version of the first ever recorded moving images, which were taken in the Leeds garden in 1888. You can see, you know, Parisians uh, having a snowball fight on the, the Seine, you know, in, in, in 1906 or, you know, the San Francisco as it was before the earthquake of that same year. So it feels really miraculous. You know, we're so used to seeing these things in black and white that the full colour versions from of stuff from more than 100 years ago does feel a little bit like time travel. 
And these videos are really popular. They're racking up millions and millions of views, but they're also proving quite controversial. Oh, I, I, why are they proving controversial? I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because I've seen these videos, they look beautiful. And I always wonder sort of how they make the colours right. Does that make sense? Because if you're looking at something in black and white, you don't really know what the original colour looked like. Um, why are they controversial? And is it because of the colours? And how did they do it? <laughs> well, yeah, so it's partly... It's partly guesswork. So one of the reasons that there's been a kind of this proliferation of colorized images and videos recently is that AI is making them easier to make. So where in the past, if you wanted to color a video, a black and white video, you'd have to go through it frame by frame and kind of hand paint over it digitally, you know, each frame. Whereas AI is kind of making it easier for you to uh, automatically detect, okay, that's the sky, it should be this color. That's the road, it should be this color. That's someone's clothes. It should be this color. So a, a Polish company called Neural Love is behind some of the most popular videos, and they use a number of different software tools to alter different aspects of the video, uh, including one called Deoldify, which adds color. Um, and the AI also helps to add extra frames. So old footage often wasn't shot in a very high frame rate. Uh, so that's the number of still images per second that go into your moving image. Um, so it can look very jerky and strange to us. So these are. Uh, Technologies kind of add frames in between those frames to make the footage look smooth, make it look more like footage that was shot today. Um, you might remember that there's a Peter Jackson uh, documentary, the director of Lord of the Rings, did a, a documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old, which was using colorized footage from the Western Front. Um, I think it was like late 2018 it came out. That was a really vivid example of the kind of things that are possible now. And it was a really powerful look at the war in a way that a lot of people won't have experienced before. It kind of really brought it to life. In the UK, I think ITV and Channel 5, two of the big TV channels over here, went through a, a period of doing everything in colour. So you could have Hitler in colour, World War One in colour. They, they did these colourised documentaries and there was obviously a bit of a vogue for them. Um, and maybe the technology was getting better to allow them to do this. But the, the difference here is that anyone can do it, right? These tools are kind of off the shelf, chuck them up on YouTube. There's not necessarily any quality control in them. And I, I guess people are making editorial decisions through the different knobs and levers that they can pull in the AI as to what the past should look like based on their interpretation of it. So that's the problem here, is it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, adding colour, in, adding colour into a black and white scene isn't like a magical process of revealing hidden information you're, you're adding information that was never actually captured the extra frames that you add in are brand new frames the colors that you see in a colorized image aren't necessarily the ones that existed in real life you know they're best guesses based on neural networks or historical research now some people will be really diligent about figuring out exactly what color people's clothes will have been in that time and that time some people won't you know so the deoldify software that i talked about uses modern images to train its ai so that means it's biased towards people wearing blue jeans for example but you know denim back then may not have been blue it may have been dyed a slightly different color so you know those things are guesses and like you say there's a degree of editorial um influence on that or you know whether it's editorial influence or just how much effort the person doing it is putting in um and that's kind of upsetting some historians so um one of them said the problem with colorization is that it leads people to think about photographs as a kind of uncomplicated window onto the past and that's not what photographs are uh, that's art historian art historian emily mark fitzgerald um or luke mckernan who was lead curator of news and moving images at the british library was really scathing about that peter jackson documentary from the first world war he called it a nonsense he said colorization does not bring us closer to the past it increases the gap between now and then it does not enable immediacy it creates difference 
So the companies that are working on this stuff say that they try and make clear to their clients the difference between kind of restoring an image, so removing scratches and noise and dust picked up during processing versus enhancing an image, uh, which is, you know, kind of adding color or upscaling it, increasing the resolution. So what they say is that, you know, what they want to do is kind of return the film to its original state. But historians are arguing that actually what they, what they end up doing is they risk obscuring the past rather than illuminating it. Well, I mean, I can kind of see where they're coming from. But isn't this a little bit like when people say uh, TV is worse than books and, and books are worse than paintings? Because from, from, from my thinking, right, OK, so a photo that is colorized you know, doesn't get as closer to that reality. It you know, maybe distorts that reality. But you don't know what was to the left of the frame in that photo, what was, what was to the right of the frame in that photo. Why did that photographer concentrate on that particular building or person? And what were they obscuring? Do, I'm interested to hear everyone's thoughts on this. Do you think that maybe we're not trusting people enough to realise this is an interpretation, just like any capture of reality or any artistic work is a you know reinterpretation of the past? Are we being a little bit unfair if we're if people are going to look at that and say, oh yeah, no, that, those dresses were definitely purple. We we believe that. You know, isn't there a certain degree of expecting people to know this is all a interpretation anyway? I I think. There's, it's all about context, right? So, like, some historians agree don't agree that this is a bad thing. So they say that, you know, anything that brings the past to life in this way and helps people engage is, is a good thing. You know, it, it's kind of getting people interested in history, getting them kind of learning about what happened in the past. So one person compares it to kind of, you know, rather than reading, like, someone's handwritten diary, you read a transcribed version of that that's easier to read and it's more accessible. And they say, you know, these videos are just making his- history more accessible. But... It's a problem of context, right? So if you watch it and you know and you're aware that it's been artificially colorized or artificially enhanced, that's fine. But on the internet, these videos can really quickly become unmoored from the context in which they were created. So, you know, it's one thing to post footage of New York in 1911 in full color with a voiceover explaining how you did what you did and the changes that you've made. But, you know, that video will live on for, you know, decades after you've created it and and it will lose that context. And, you know, what happens in the future if someone then takes that video and presents it as fact without any of the disclaimers and you know then future historians don't realize that it's been you know altered and you end up distorting the historical record you know and it might be something small like oh people's genes didn't used to be that color or it might be something really big but it's all distortion and like your question's right really interesting Matt it's like kind of a, a philosophical question and I'm not really sure what the answer is because as you say like that jerky black and white footage from 1911 obviously didn't capture the historical scene accurately either, right? Like, you know, people didn't move around like that back then and the world wasn't in black and white. So there's a kind of really interesting question of whether using AI to add colour and making movement smoother, are you distorting the image or are you bringing it back closer to how it would have actually looked in real life at the time? Which is just a fascinating kind of philosophical question. It might just be the case that YouTube isn't a particularly good place to store history. So maybe when speaking to people who dedicate their lives to the, the preservation of historical archive material, that the very idea that any of it is, is on YouTube unmoored from context and expertise throws up all kinds of issues. And when you, the, the AI hand becomes unseen, that could potentially cause problems with seeing issues raised around the use of deep fakes to make people say things that they never said. Um, and there's, there's always an issue with technology of this nature of mission creep, something that starts off as a, a fun little hobby could be used to paint a picture of the past 
that was very, very different. And you won't realise because it looks damn accurate. Uh, uh, that's true. Um, but I guess you could, I mean, uh, to play devil's advocate, you could uh, point the same accusations at photographs anyway, in the sense that like, especially in the early days of film and photography, they're not candid shots of people just going about their daily lives, right? You know, these are posed things. People get dressed up in their finery and, you know, they, they stand still for four hours or whatever while the, the camera does its thing. And it's the same today, right? If if you looked at our digital records of our lives today, you don't see an accurate picture of what our lives are actually like because they're self-edited and they're self-censored and, and, and certain things rise to the top that aren't an actual reflection of what life is like for the majority of people not just in a developed world, but also globally. You know what I mean? Like you can't learn anything about what someone's life is like in a third world country by looking at someone in Europe's Snapchat profile. It's just a completely different world. And I think the same is true of, of historical footage as well, um, which doesn't really like settle the argument one way or the other, but I just think it's something that we have to be really aware of when we're looking at this stuff. Maybe it's one of those brilliant arguments where there isn't a good answer or a right answer, but it's something that everyone should be aware of and interrogating so that they can not come to their own conclusions, but be more thoughtful about what they're seeing. Podcast at wired.co.uk. This is a really fascinating story um, and we've got a lot of feedback on it already, but let us know what you think. Podcast at wired.co.uk is the use of AI to tidy up the past and make it more presentable to us in the here and now acceptable, or is this a bit of a risky path to take? Do let us know. Our third and final story this week is about Italy, Matt Reynolds, where you just happen to live right now. It is where I happen to live right now, but it, it's not. This is not a, a personal travel log, so you'll be you'll be pleased to hear I'm not going to bore you all with with that experience. This is about how Italy is doing right now in terms of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Now, it might seem like a million years ago, but it was only six, seven months ago or so that we were in the UK watching images or people in the UK were watching images of Northern Italy, which was at that point by far the worst hit place in Europe by the COVID-19 pandemic. Really the first place outside of China, along with places like Iran that that saw really major outbreaks. I'm sure loads of our listeners across the world will remember this this grim footage in in March of hospitals um, in Northern Italy with emergency wards filled with patients that were struggling to breathe and overcrowded, you know, flowing into the corridors, um, funeral homes that were stacked with coffins because they were overwhelmed with the number of people dying. It was really, I think for a lot of people in Europe in particular, really, really shocking um, you know, example of, of what the pandemic would go on to bring to the rest of the world. Now, as of today, the country has, I think it's the sixth highest death toll in the pandemic, with a little under 36,000 deaths recorded. But now, while a lot of Europe is struggling with a resurgence of the virus, we're seeing that in France and Spain and the UK as well to some extent, the picture has kind of flipped over from that very early um, image that we had. And now Italy is something of Europe's success story. Which is so strange to think when you put it in the context of how things were in Italy just a few months ago. So we've heard a lot about how the UK and France and Spain have struggled with this surge in cases as we approach the autumn. But what's the situation like in Italy at the moment? Yeah, actually, I think it's a good point to think about in terms of comparisons, actually, because the reason why Italy is a really interesting example is, is when we're talking about countries that 
were good at combating COVID-19. We think about places like Germany or South Korea or Taiwan. Um, but unlike Italy, they're all places that had a pretty good um, hold on the disease from pretty early on. Now, Italy didn't, like you said. It had a really bad um, you know, initial uh, wave, but things have got a lot better. So when we're talking about how they're doing, we're talking about how they're doing right now. So this is data from October the 2nd. This is how it compares to some other you know, large European nation. So in Italy, uh, there are 40.4 new coronavirus cases every 14 days per 100,000 people. So that's over the last two weeks, on average, for every 100,000 people, how many people got coronavirus? So in Italy, that's 40.4. Now you compare that with the UK, where the rate is 118. In France, it's 242. And in Spain, it's 326. So lot, you know, much, much worse in these countries that are seeing quite significant significant second waves. Um, even in Germany, which has outperformed pretty much all European countries when it comes to keeping the, uh, a lid on the pandemic, the number of cases uh, per 14 days, the number of cases every 14 days per 100,000 of the population is 32.1, so quite similar to Italy's figures. Now, I know our listeners, of course, know how to interpret statistics and they'll realise that, okay, well, infections, new cases only tell us part of the dynamic, right? Maybe Italy is testing less, maybe Germany is testing more, maybe, you know, maybe the UK is testing way more people. So it's only part of the story. But they'll also know that deaths are a slightly better indication of how a country is performing because they don't change with testing rates. You know, there are some problems with deaths, but they don't change with testing rates. There you see that Italy is doing pretty well too. So it recorded 0.4 deaths per 100,000 of the population for the last 14 days. And you compare that in the UK, and that figure is 0.7. In France, it's 1.4. And in Spain, it's 3.3. So on both of these measures, new cases and deaths, Italy is performing pretty well at the moment. So, so I remember back in March kind of reading a lot of theories about why Italy had been particularly badly hit, ranging from, you know, different kind of social behaviour through to, you know, a particular influx of people from, from Wuhan into a particular city because of some thing or some some reason or another. So what is Italy doing better now than other parts of Europe? Why is, why is the case rate so low there compared to here in the UK, for example? Yeah, so, so one reason might be that those early terrifying scenes from northern Italy just made people much more observant of following the rules. Now, I think there's a bit of a caveat here. Um, it's really, really difficult to know why one country is doing really well and other ones aren't doing so well. But, but this is one of the things that the experts tend to say. So um, in June, there was an Imperial College London study that said that 84% of Italians would be willing to wear a face mask if the government advised them to. And there's a sense that actually the Italian po- population is much more observant in terms of watching uh, wearing face masks. So it's um, mandatory in Italy and you face fines of uh, you know, around 3,000 euros if you don't follow them. YouGov statistics showed that people in Italy were more likely to wear face masks and coverings and and avoid crowded places um, more often than in other European countries. Just to add my little anecdotal experience on that, because obviously I was in the UK two months ago and now I live um, in northern Italy. you definitely see a lot of people when they're out in public wearing face masks, even if they're just kind of walking around the streets, especially if they're going past places that are either a little bit crowded or there are you know, chairs and tables out because it's an outdoor restaurant or, or a bar, bar or something. I, I see that a lot more than I did in London. But also, you know, people tend to congregate on pavements less in London. There's less, less, less outdoor eating. More life is conducted indoors in the UK. It's also true that rules have been stricter than in the UK. So um, waiters have always had to wear masks and customers since 
you know, since these rules kind of first came into place. And customers have had to wear masks in restaurants when not inside and eating. And, and those rules only became mandatory in the UK very recently. Furthermore, when in August they started to see, the Italian government started to see cases kind of starting to rise, um, the government ordered that masks had to be worn in all crowded outdoor places between 6pm and 6am. Now, part of the reason for this mask compliance um, you know, it's been suggested, is that actually people are pretty confident in the in the Italian government's response. So that Italy had a really long and very strict lockdown. You know, you weren't actually allowed to leave the street, um, even to kind of put your bins out, really. You had to have a note to say, I was going to a doctor, or, you know, I'm collecting my groceries. And, and it wasn't like in the UK where you could still go out and exercise. So it was really drilled in. It was a very serious thing to have to follow. And in a survey from June, um, the majority of Italians, so 65% of Italians, said they approved of the government response to the pandemic. And we know from behavioural psychology that the more that you trust the people that are telling you to do something, the more likely you are to, to comply with it. So we think that a significant element of this is, is kind of overall compliance with social distancing rules. You mentioned earlier that testing isn't necessarily the best measure to see how governments are coping with coronavirus. But but what is the situation uh, about testing in Italy and are they better at it than the UK, for example? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because I think a lot of our conversations around testing have concentrated on, OK, well, how many tests are we doing? And that is really, really important. If you're not testing enough people, you're not understanding where the disease is spreading and you're not able to really know where to target your interventions. But it's also really, really important that you're testing in the most useful way possible. Now, Italy tests less per person than the UK. I think it has about a third fewer tests per person in the UK. But their approach to testing is quite different. So the Italian approach has been to test, if someone tests positive for coronavirus, um, everyone within their social network will be tested. So it'll be their families, their friends, their colleagues, their neighbours, regardless of whether or not they have been actually exposed to the person. Now that's quite different in the UK. Um, In the UK, the advice is you only get tested if you have actually displayed symptoms. So even though if you've been exposed, you should be self-isolating, you won't be asked to take a test unless you actually start having coronavirus symptoms. And one advantage of this is it enables um, the government in Italy to uncover asymptomatic cases and and essentially discover cases before they start to be a problem. It's also rolling out these rapid antigen tests. So unlike the tests that um, most commonly people have interacted with, are kind of those swab tests that test for viral DNA, these tests are much quicker and these are being used at airports and they've just been rolled out in stations and um, ferry terminals. And they, they can give people responses in 20 to 30 minutes. And although these are less accurate than the PCR tests, those swab tests I was just talking about, they do do they do give a really quick indication of who doesn't have the disease and it helps target who might be followed up with a PCR test. So again, it's about deploying this test, um, this testing in the most useful way. And the, the kind of the other element of this is the Italian government has actually been really good at making sure that businesses are complying with the COVID-19 rules. So there's a report in the Financial Times this week that said that police had checked um, almost 51,000 individuals and 5,000 businesses where remote working had been encouraged to go into those businesses and make sure that people were compliant with COVID-19 rules. Now, this is something the UK government is only just talking about, making sure businesses actually follow through on compliance with the rules. And in that check that the Italian government did, they sanctioned about 230 individuals and ordered the closure of three companies. So there's a sense that actually, you know, businesses are really aware that if people aren't following the COVID-19 rules on their premises, there will be a really 
big consequence for them and they're more likely to abide by the rules because of that. So there's an element here that individuals have been scared into compliance by the severity of the outbreak in Italy and the seriousness of the lockdown, but also officials and something that has been a common theme in Asian countries that have managed to get a good grip on this pandemic, particularly South Korea, Japan and the territory of Hong Kong, is there's a very high level of public compliance to whatever rules are put in place and people don't, quote unquote, push their luck. So you know that if you introduce a certain measure, it will be adhered to. And you're sort of saying that that's what's happening in Italy, which is interesting because one of the questions that was raised very early in the pandemic is how will this change the way people behave? And you're kind of suggesting that in Italy, it's had quite a drastic impact on the way that people go about their day-to-day lives for the better, because now they're able to respond to the potential surging cases as we go into the autumn. But do we expect things to change? Is Italy just kind of getting by on a bit of luck and good behaviour? Is it inevitable that cases there will start to tick up? Yeah, it's really difficult to know. So one advantage that Italy has is that it's quite obviously, it's hotter than the UK. People tend to socialise outdoors. But that is obviously going to change as temperatures start to cool down down and to be fair that's also true of spain but that has been seeing a major major rise in cases so it doesn't necessarily apply so evenly now although we haven't seen the kind of dramatic rise that the uk and france and spain have experienced over the last month or so schools and universities have only been reopened for a few weeks and new infections in uh in italy rose by over two and a half thousand uh on thursday so recording this on on friday and this is the highest since april so yeah, that, that slope is still kind of ticking up. And I, I think the interesting question here is, is how do you keep that compliance um, you know, in the future? How do you keep that going on? And how do you try and keep that level as low down as possible for as long as possible? And then my other question, and, and I think the comparison to the UK is really interesting here, because we were talking about those pictures from, from Lombardy, from, from northern Italy. Well, there's actually more people have died in the UK than have died in Italy. And I think a really interesting question is, well, why were the British population not so scared um, into compliance necessarily? Is it because we didn't see such dramatic pictures? Do numbers have less of effect than, than these kind of news reports and, and stuff? And I guess that's a question that I'm, I'm not sure there's an easy answer to, because it does feel that in the UK, even though our pandemic has been worse, our response to it on a population level has perhaps been a little bit more muted. And I'm not entirely sure where that comes from maybe um, certain government advisors taking long distance uh, eyesight tests didn't help public trust in the seriousness of the situation Um, you certainly feel in the UK that there was a moment at which the government lost control of its ability to communicate the seriousness of the situation with the population And, and once that starts to happen it's seemingly quite difficult to get people to trust it again, as we're seeing with local lockdowns being imposed in parts of the northeast of the UK and local political figures, the mayor of Middlesbrough saying we're not going to adhere to these rules before someone pointing out that actually it would be illegal not to and him going, OK, then I guess we'll have to. It's not a particularly good situation here in the UK, but it's good to see that other countries have been able to learn from the mistakes that they made to begin with and are hopefully going to have a better winter than other parts of the world. Podcast 
at wired.co.uk. Cheer us up with more good stories of countries and regions that are doing well as they learn from the lessons of the first wave of COVID-19 infections. It's going to be a long, cold winter, so we could do with some good news. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Time for one of your emails before we wrap up for this week. Matt Reynolds, who was in the inbox this week? Barry wrote in and Barry wrote, I enjoyed Matt's risk assessment analysis and agree with all with all of it, except the idea that closing pubs early will reduce the rate of infection. So this was the story on last week's podcast where I was talking about some rules we can follow for making our kind of our pandemic decisions a bit easier. You know, do I go socialize with a friend? Maybe I should do it here. Maybe I should do it there. And, you know, how, how to, you know, navigate the pandemic in a little bit little bit less stressful way. So Barry writes about this idea of closing the pubs early. Folk will arrive earlier and the pub will be more crowded as pub goers are compressed into the shorter time. More people, more squashed, more infections. I think that's a really good point, Barry. I've, and, you know, I have been searching this week for data on whether pubs were more crowded and saw, you know, the same amount of people in less time. And you know what? No one really seems to know. Did, did, did the pandemics, did, did this, does this earlier closing time mean that people are kind of being squashed into the pubs for shorter periods of time? Or are people just fewer people going? As, as I think that was the intention behind the um, the policy i would be really interested if maybe you run a pub or you visit a pub did you notice more people coming in than usual of course pubs should be following the one meter social distancing rules indoors so there should be a ceiling capacity really on how many people that pub can take and in theory if you're at that ceiling capacity for you know the hours between six and eleven if you reduce that one hour then you should just have fewer people in the pub over that entire time period but maybe that's not your experience so i would love to know because i've spoken to some pubs and actually it seems that people don't really have a good handle on the data and whether this did um you know increase the risk or decrease it so if you're you know in the pub business then you know the email podcast at wired.co.uk just in case you don't know the email we do say it a lot but podcast at wired.co.uk thank you so much for your email barry and thanks to everyone else who wrote in this week do get in touch we do like to hear from you thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next week goodbye bye bye, bye.